Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 117 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, guest geeks Paolo Bacigalupi, Tobias Bacal, and Ramez Nam will be joining me to discuss extreme weather in science fiction books and movies. But first up, we've got an interview with number one New York Times bestselling urban fantasy author Kim Harrison. The 13th and final book in her Hollows series, The Witch with No Name, is out now. And now, here's our interview with Kim Harrison. All right, so we're here with Kim Harrison. Welcome to the show. It is great to be here. All right, so first of all, why don't you just tell us a bit about how you first got interested in reading fantasy and science fiction? Oh, I grew up on it. Um, we're going to go way back to, to middle school. Um, I'd always been a really good reader, but in middle school, they let me um, become a library aide, as bad as that sounds. I was a library aide for two years, and the, um, the library was stock full of a lot of fantasy and science fiction. And um, I, I made that library mine. I, I read everything in it. And it was like, believe it or not, they had Asimov in there and, and um, Heinlein and um, Andre Norton. So I got a lot of um, my, my early science fiction from them. But they also had the fantasy. And, and I wasn't reading just, you know, the... the um, the Hansel and Gretel stuff. I was reading, I, I later found out that they were actually uh, research textbooks for the teachers uh, because they were fairy tales from from Germany and from France and from the UK. And and they were, you know, telling the same story over and over and over in different ways. And so I was seeing all these little things, differences that um, different uh societies would, would put into their, their fairy tales to make them unique and different and uh, pertinent to them. And I was soaking it all in. And that's where I really got my start in reading the science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, I mean, people used to kind of look askance at you if you were reading fantasy in science fiction. Did you <laughs> in encounter that at all among the librarians and oh, teachers? Oh, yes. Um, going back to, to middle school and high school, I would always have a, a, a book, a pleasure reading book on my stack of books as I go from class to class. And I used it. I used it to keep people away. I was very introverted. You know, I had my, my close group of friends, but I really didn't care what the cool kids were doing. And I would use these books and the weirder the cover, the weirder the name, the more far out it was, the more they left me alone. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, I used it. And uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't, but there it is. <laughs> well, so what book uh, was most effective at keeping people away because of what the cover looks like? Um, I'm going to say that my favorite one that I carried around was a collection of short stories by Asimov called Tomorrow's Children. And it was a big, thick, um, massive book. And if I, you know, I'm tempted to go back to the, to the library and see if they still have it because it would have, you know, my name on it. And then my name would check it out again, and then I'd check it out again, and I'd check it out again. I think I'm the only one that checked that thing out for the two years that I worked in the library, but that's the one I used. And actually, um, that 
collection uh, made such an impact that when I finally found publication, one of the first things I did with one of those bigger checks that I didn't have to put towards, you know, food and heat and rent, uh, was to track down a signed copy of that. And um, that is one of my treasured things. Well, all right. Well, speaking of publication, why don't we talk a little bit about how did you make that transition from being a reader to being a writer? Oh, it was, it was, you know, horrible. And, and it was uplifting. Um, now, keep in mind that this, that my story happened about, um, about 15 years ago, and we didn't have the ebooks, we didn't have the self publication. If you self published, you were vanity press. And so, really, the only way that you could do this and be considered a writer would be to have a one of the big six publish your work. And they were swamped at that point with manuscripts like they are now because the computer had become more popular. People thought that if they could put sentences on on paper that they were a writer, well, which is kind of silly because you wouldn't sit down and paint a picture and expect, you know, a museum to take it. But people assume that, you know, I, I, I wrote this body of work. Why isn't, why aren't you buying it? Why isn't it any good? Well, you know, it's, it's a skill. It's a talent. You, you have to work really hard at it. And um, I worked really hard at it. It, it, but it was hard. My first thing that I wrote was absolutely pathetic. I mean, they all are, but I thought they were good. And, and, you know, I figured I'm just going to keep at this and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it until somebody shows some interest. Well, um, this was, like I said, about 15 years ago. And the first person I sent my work off to was Tor. And I got um, a lovely rejection letter back. And I think I cried for about 10 minutes and I took a walk and I said, I'm never going to do this again. I just never. Well, that lasted about half an hour. And then, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, I'm back at the keyboard. So it's like an addiction. You can't shake it. If it's in your blood, you can't shake it. Um, Eventually, though, I found a writer's critique group. And if there's anybody out there who's really serious about writing for a living, Get yourself in a face-to-face writer's critique group. Um, I've heard about the online ones. You never get a chance to really see who you're talking with, and you don't have that opportunity to um, evaluate how how pertinent their um, advice might be. So that's why I always say get yourself away from your desk. Do something social. Yeah, we have to be social. Find a writer's critique group that meets um, every week if you can. They're in bookstores, they're in libraries, they're in coffee houses, and it's not going to be easy to find them. But if you do, you know, get in there and start sharing your work uh, because these are the people who are going to go with you to the writer conferences where agents and editors go to, um, to, to find the talent. And that's how I broke into print is... I had a published author who kind of took me under her wing, um, Faith Hunter. She's, she's still my best friend. I talked to her today. Um, and she took me there. She, she took all of the whole group there and set up a party. And, and I met Richard Curtis, the man who eventually became my agent. But if not for her, I don't know um, how it would have evolved. I mean, it's as much time as we spend 
alone, working with our words. We have got to get out and do something social and, and interact <laughs> with other people. Um, but so what conference was that where you met your agent? That was a conference down in Atlanta, I believe. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I believe it was um, a mystery writers conference. And I don't write mystery, but it worked. Um, and that's where I, I met Richard Curtis. He, uh, I went to a panel that he was on. I got to talk to him. I think I spent like maybe 10, maybe five minutes with him, actually, because you have to be careful when you meet agents and editors not to swamp them and soak up their time and, and be the stalker. It's more like a, hi, this is who I am. This is what I write. I understand you publish or you, you sell this. Can I send you... Um, you know, my synopsis. And then once you have that invite, then you can put that in your cover letter and they will remember you and think well of you at that point. If you just get that, yes, you can send it to me and then walk away. Now, I know things have really changed tremendously with the advent of ebooks and, and self-publication. So I don't know how helpful my advice is anymore. But getting out and meeting agents and editors is never a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And so he sold your first book for you. And at that time, you were writing as Don Cook. Yes, I was. Yes, um, that would be uh, The First Truth. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that was more sort of epic fantasy kind of stuff? It was. Um, it, I like to say it's like Tolkien, only with a tiny, tiny cast. <laughs> and we never go and we never go anywhere. <laughs> so it's really not like Tolkien at all. No, um, I really like going back and looking at my earlier work because um, watching it evolve has been really fascinating for me. Uh, when I first started, I had very small cast and I was able to devote a lot of time to developing the characters. And the, the book would span like a year or six months, this huge amount of time. And I've been watching as, as my, my skills increase that the book, my books now take maybe a week, maybe two, and the cast is bigger and I'm involving world events rather than just this one little thing. But I've been able to pull the skills that I learned on those first books of how to make a character memorable and important and, and, you know, kind of evolve them really quickly on the page. I can, I, I've been able to pull that from my first stuff and put it into my latest things. And so it's been really interesting looking back and seeing uh, how I've evolved my writing skills. Mm. And so how did you go from Don Cook, the epic fantasy author to Kim Harrison, the urban fantasy author? Oh, that was um, a trip. Uh, urban fantasy was really new. It, it didn't even have a name yet. Um, this was just about when Jim Butcher started writing and Charlene Harris, they, and, um, Hamilton, Hamilton had really broken ground. Uh, she wasn't the first, but she was the first who made it marketable. And then Butcher and Charlene came along and then I was shortly behind them. Um, but I was still writing as Don Cook. Uh, my publisher at Ace passed on the manuscript, and so my um, my agent shopped it around. It took about a year, actually, before somebody picked it up. Um, what you read in Dead Witch Walking really is not 
what I wrote. I mean, there were so many tweaks and, and changes and shifts. It was more young adult. It was more quirky. I had, you know, puns all over the place. And so it needed a lot of work. So I really don't blame Ace for passing on it because it's, it, it was not what you see on the shelf. Uh, but one of the, 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 odd quirks about the publishing industry is that book buyers will often give a new name more of a chance than they will an old name with a kind of track record. Now, the Dawn books were doing okay, but they hadn't accelerated. So my new publicist wanted to make a clean break from the Dawn books. And since it wasn't a new genre, it it really wasn't an issue for me. You know, my Dawn name really hadn't taken off. So I said, sure. So my editor picked out the name she wanted. I was either going to be Kim Harrison or Lisa Harrison because she wanted me shelved right next to Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's kind of a joke. If you're going to write urban fantasy, you need to have a name that ends in H (laughs) because we're all over there. Uh, So she picked out my name. And it's from a legal standpoint, it's also easier to to write a new series and change publishers by taking on a pen name because of uh, the like the legalities. It's just so much easier. So there's a lot of reasons why people will take pen names. For me, it was so that the books would have a better chance, um, and that's kind of that's also why uh, the wig. I'd been doing publicity as Dawn for a while and my photo was out and my editor really wanted a, a, a very sharp degree of separation. So she says, get a wig, have some fun with it. So, so that's what I did. Well, so, so you don't really have red hair or? Mm-mm. Huh. <laughs> no, I am actually a blonde. Um, so there it is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Okay, well, that's interesting. So um, tell us a bit more about Dead Witch Walking, just for people who haven't read the series, just kind of oh, what's the world sure. like. Yeah, it's really quirky. Um, when I, Dead Witch Walking actually started out as a short story. Um, I was trying to break into print when I, this is even before the Truth Books came out. I was trying to break into print, and I wrote a short story called Life is a, a Bowl of Cereal. And it's basically that first chapter in Dead Witch Walking. And I was trying to get agent attention or editor attention. So um, the, the stuff that was making the short story market was really weird at that time. And, and I knew I couldn't match that level of weirdness. So I said, okay, you want weird. I am going to put a pixie, a vampire, and a witch in a bar and see what happens. And basically, it's, it was the first chapter of Dead Witch Walking. So, you know, I, I hate to tell people... Um, to, to pick up Dead Witch Walking cold and, and try to read it without knowing that, yes, it starts very quirky and odd, but there is some substance here. Um, there is some science. You know, I'm basing the magic on science. Um, it's not all flight and fancy and silly stuff, um, but it, it sure starts that way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dead Witch Walking is basically a 20-something witch living in modern-day Cincinnati. Um, now, here comes the quirky part. At this point, the world has, the human population has been decimated by a virus that was carried by tomatoes. Um, that's my nod to the movie Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Um, 
my sense of humor showing, whether it's good or bad. Um, so the a third of the human population has been wiped out, which has left the, the witches and werewolves and vampires who've been there all along to sort of say, hey, we're no longer a minority. Let's come out of the closet. And that is exactly what happened um, 40 years before Dead Witch Walking starts. So at this point, magic is out. Vampires are out. If you think your, your high school teacher is a werewolf, you know what? He probably was. Um, and she works, Rachel works for the police force that patrols and tries to keep tabs on the supernaturals. And... And when Dead Witch Walking starts, she quits her job, which was a really bad idea. And she takes their best agent with her, and who also has um, an agenda of her own. And they move into a church, and they they have a, a pixie backup, which sounds like a horribly bad idea. But this guy, he's four inches tall. His name is Jinx, and everybody loves Jinx. He's because he's the family man. He's um, the guy with the mortgage. He's the one with the worries. He's got 54 kids he has to feed. Hmm. Nobody takes him seriously. But he's the most dangerous one in the group because he can fly. He's got this sword he knows how to use. And he's not afraid to give you a a lobotomy if you tick him off. Um, So that's probably more than you ever wanted to know about (laughs) David Walking. Okay. Well, when you say that the magic is based on science, what do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I actually have a degree, in, a bachelor's degree in science. Um, and my dad, he's, he's scratching his head. He's saying, you went to school for science and, and you write books for a living. And I just nod and say, yep, yep, I use it every day, Dad. <laughs> um, I, it always bothered me that the black box of magic where you wave a wand and you say a word and something happens and you know that just never pleased my sensibilities so um i try to to put up a um a spin on the magic that kind of goes back to science in some ways um the the magic is run in my universe by ley lines which has been around for uh, the idea of ley lines have been around for a long time um not really popular until the last 10 years or so. And, and, and I take that, which is, you know, mythical, but I try to, then I go in and say, well, maybe it's a, a rift in time where the energy is leaking through, or maybe it's the back end of a wormhole or, so I try to find um, a basis for it. It turns out they are a, um, a kind of a, a slice in, the fabric of time where you can get to an alternate reality where the demons have been. And, and so it goes on and on. And yeah, I do like basing things on science when I can. And it was biology, right? You studied? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, major. Well, it, it, the degree is technically in science, technology, and something else. But I, I, my core of study was biology. Uh, I mean, was the the idea of the GMO killer tomatoes inspired at all by your biology study? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I think we um, we are uh, doing a few dangerous things. Um, you know, putting a beta carotene uh, gene into a um, 
into a, a rutabaga is fine, but when you start putting um, genes into your corn that they make their own uh, toxins, that's another story. And people are not being careful with what they're doing. I mean, that, that toxin that's in that corn that, that um, they've engineered into the corn, that's great, except the, the, that toxin is in the pollen and we're breathing the pollen and insects are eating the pollen and dying and we're upsetting our food chain. And, and just because we can do it, we need to make sure that it's the smart thing to do, that, that money is not the deciding factor. It should be, is it good for the environment or are we screwing ourselves? And so that is one of the reasons why I did choose a GMO to be the end of um, humanity's power, because if we're not careful, it's going to be. Do you ever get um, people who have strong feelings on that issue right to you? Uh, you know what? I, I don't. And I think part of the reason is because um, the book's are so far out there from the 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 span of the people who are you know the movers and shakers and who are concerned with it the the people who are concerned with it would never pick up a book about a witch a vampire mm -hmm. and a pixie um however the people who are reading it um they they're getting the message they they are and you know change sometimes happens very slowly and I'd like to think that maybe I'm helping make a change. Well, tell us about why did you decide to set the books in Cincinnati? Oh, Cincinnati. Um, well, actually, it's all about location. Uh, my editor came to me very early on um, when we were doing the rewrite for Dead Witch Walking, and she says, from a marketing standpoint, it would be really great if we could set this in a real city. And so I literally took and opened up the map, and I said, okay, I can't talk about East or West Coast because the salt interferes with the magic. And I can't do anything West of the Mississippi because I've spent my life on the East. And, and you, you know, you'd see right through it if I tried to put it in the desert. Um, I needed it in a certain latitude because I wanted to use the seasons to help ground the books. So that took out quite, you know, the, the southern cities. And I wanted a river to run through it. I wanted a city of a certain size so that there was mass transit, but most people got around in their cars. And so I looked at, at the map and I said, oh, it's got to be Cincinnati. So I called up my editor. I said, I've picked a city. It's Cincinnati. And there's this really long silence on the other end. Uh, I don't think she was pleased with the idea of Cincinnati, but I started doing research on it, and I really chose wisely. Um, Cincinnati kept all their, well, a lot of their old architecture. They're the end of the Underground Railroad. They've got that world-class zoo that nobody knows about. Um, they've got the Basilica there. Um, a lot of the things that I talk about, are really in the books. Even the tunnels that that are underneath the city, those really exist. I got a, I had a chance to go down under them this summer, and um, they're down there. They they look exactly like I thought they would. Um, so Cincinnati was very fictitious, and um, I I was really fortunate to have picked it. I mean, could you say a little bit more about the tunnels? What what were they for? Yeah, uh, the tunnels under Cincinnati started. Oh my gosh, they're they're over a hundred years old. Um, it used to be a, an old canal 
that they use for transport. And they, the city fathers said, you know, we got to get rid of this canal. It was, it was causing problems with cholera and whatnot. So they dredged it out, started putting in a subway system that was, it was only going to be like two or three miles long. Um, unfortunately, um, they ran into some trouble. World War, I think World War II came along. They had some issues with kickbacks and, and politics got in the way. They basically ran out of money. Um, they, they did get large sections of it finished, um, but they're, they're empty. There's, there's no facilities down there. There's no electricity. There's no water. They do use a portion of the tunnel for like um, their, their phone lines. And I think they have a water pipe under there, which turned out to be not such a good idea. Um, but they overbuilt it. I mean, they've got their rebar is like an inch thick and, and the cement is, is like feet. And they treat it like a bridge. They have to go down there every two years and inspect it. They have tours that go down there. Uh, this summer, um, they made a special uh, trip down there, and they took me and a film crew, and that was fun. I mean, um, I, I'm a mess in the video because it's dirty and dank, and there's no light, um, but I had a blast. I mean, was that difficult to arrange, or you just said, hey, I'm Kim Harrison, number one New York Times um, bestselling author, and they put you down it there? It took... Or? It took my publicist and a film crew um, to to arrange it. I probably couldn't call them up and say, hey, I'm Ken Harrison. I want to go down there. Um, but my publicist had the backing of, of HarperCollins, you know, the big name there. And then, then the film crew was there. And, and so they worked it together to get me to go down there. But they do have tours that fill up very, very quickly, about twice a year that they go down. And um, if, if you ever get the chance to do so, it's really kind of cool. Um, and so you mentioned the Underground Railroad too. Could you say a bit more about how, how that worked with Cincinnati and the Underground Railroad? Mm -hmm. uh, Cincinnati does have had the Underground Railroad. Um, you know, you, there's a lot of places that say they're the end of the Underground Railroad. Detroit has one uh, because once they get across you know, the river, they're in a completely different country, but most people call Cincinnati the end of that particular branch of the Underground Railroad because once they get across that Ohio River, uh, their chances are much better that they won't be pulled back. Um, they actually have a museum there. Um, I took some time and went through it. They have um, a, a slave pen right in their front. And, oh, I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. Uh, when I went to visit and did some research on it, that um, particular slave pen made such an impression on me that I had to put it into the books. And um, I was a little inventive with it. I believe it was White Witch, Black Curse is the one that, that I mentioned, uh, the Underground Railroad. Um, it, it, that I, I said that the, the slave pen that they have on display is actually a fake. This is not true. This is me making this up. And the one, the real one, the one with the magic symbols and, and the one with all the, the, the power in it is below ground in the area where you can't get to. And um, one of my main characters was really angry that they hid this from the general public until he got down there and felt the power behind it and realized that it was 
re- it was too to to see it and touch it and feel it was so powerful that um, they were right to 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 hide it. And those feelings that Glenn experienced, you know, were are the same ones that I felt when I was there. So that's one of the reasons why I do like um, getting out and seeing the places that I write about. I also heard you mention that in Cincinnati, there are these garden cemeteries that you really like. Yes. Um, Spring Grove Cemetery is one of the first and oldest um, garden cemeteries in the United States. Um, Cincinnati used to be the fourth largest city in the U.S., and a lot of the remnants from that era still linger, and Spring Grove Cemetery is one of them. Um, I, I did set a scene there, so I have been out there, and I've, I've walked through it. It's very peaceful and lovely. Um, but Spring Grove came about as a way to uh, rehouse the cholera victims um, of that century, and um, it, it's kind of gruesome when you stop and think about it, but that's one of the reasons why they wanted a garden cemetery. A garden cemetery, as opposed to a regular cemetery, is one where not every grave has a huge headstone. Most of the graves are marked with a small plaque set level with the ground, so you can still find them, but visually it's more open and more garden-like. And um, it's quite nice out there, actually. Um, Cincinnati, though, did have a problem for a long time with grave robbing, which I think is very cool in a morbid mm-hmm. sort of way. Um, they hadn't come up with any regulations on corpses, how to handle um, cadavers that the medical schools were uh, demanding. Um, at this point in time, there was a huge demand for cadavers for the medical schools, and Cincinnati was you know, just a short railroad ride from a lot of the big um, schools. And so oftentimes you'd be in the ground for several hours and then you'd be unearthed, stolen out of your grave and put on a railroad car and shipped out, which (laughs) is horrible. But uh, they used to have people who would guard your grave for several days until your body had decomposed to the point where it was no longer useful. Uh, which is awful. I don't think they knew that anymore, but it did, <laughs> but it did help um, the, the fervor from, from people being upset that their relatives were being yanked out against their will and, you know, shipped off. The fervor from that did help uh, bring about the, the laws that are now in place to mm-hmm. prevent it. There's actually, there's a short story about that called The Body Snatcher. I think it might be by Robert Louis Stevenson. It would not surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> it was a really good story. Um, so is that cemetery, is that where you took your author photo? Uh, no, actually, my author photo is from a small cemetery in York County, South Carolina. It's either South Carolina or North Carolina. We are We used to live right on the border, and I'm not sure which which side of the border that cemetery was on. But that one, that's, it's a really nice cemetery. Um, a lot of the graves are like over two, 200 years old. And, and you know, you can walk through it and see the family names and, and how people would have like five or six kids. And, you know, they'd live for a year or two. And, and it'd be, it, you know, it's kind of nasty, but, but there, <laughs> there it is. It's kind of comforting to know they're all there, I suppose. 
Um, all right, well, let's talk a little bit more about the characters in these books. Uh, one thing I think is really interesting about this series is that your villains keep turning into good guys. Yeah, yeah, that's because I really like the bad boys. Hmm. Um, um, if you want to talk about Trent, um, there's a reason why he kind of turned good. Um, I really wanted my bad guy to be the suave, debonair, rich kid who had everything, which is how Trent started. Um, and I wanted my good guy, the one that Rachel would fall in love with and change and grow and you know become a full person with, would be the downtrodden, smart, intelligent, very you know wickedly clever guy. And that's where Nick comes in. Um, but Nick turned out to be kind of a, uh, a nasty guy. Um, he he didn't he never really um, understood Rachel, and um, he he kept betraying her, thinking that it was for the best. Um, at the same time, Trent started showing some redeeming features that I completely didn't expect, um, but. That's I, I didn't want him to be the good guy. I wanted him to be the bad guy, which is why he does all these awful things in, in the first half of the series. Um, but it was uh, when, when he um, started making decisions that he knew might please Rachel that I realized that it hit, my idea had gone horribly wrong. <laughs> and my downtrodden, smart, intelligent, wickedly clever man was really a not nice person. And my spoiled, rich brat of, of a powerful man really had the biggest potential to grow and, and learn and use his, um, his resources to uh, the greater good. Um, it took a long time because I had dug a huge hole that Trent had to pull himself out of. I mean, he was a bad man. He was doing bad, despicable things. And it took a lot of creative mythology to, to show, oh, he did this to save his species. Well, wouldn't you kill a man to save your species? I probably sure. would. But it, ha it would have to be for a very big reason. And slowly I pulled him out of this hole that I dug. And uh, realized that that Trent and Rachel really were probably meant for each other because he was challenging her her view of the world, and just as much as he was challenging hers, she was challenging his. She was changing him. She was causing him to make different decisions. And at that point, I real I threw it all up in the air and said, "Okay, let's do it. Let's see if it works." She hasn't liked anybody else I've thrown at her. And uh, I, I think it's I think it's worked. It's it's taken a long time, but I was fortunate to have you know the, the twelve thirteen books to work in, um, and I do love the long running romance. Mm -hmm. Well, could you talk a little bit about too about Rachel's relationship with Ivy? Mm. Yes, um, Ivy was also one of the people that um, I sort of showed Rachel as possibly being a life mate. Um, I like Ivy. She is one of my favorite characters. Um, you know, I cry for her. She, I, I've used uh, vampirism as kind of a metaphor for drug abuse and spousal abuse um, and manipulation. Being, you know, the, this strong person is manipulating 
someone weaker than them and making them love them for all the wrong reasons. And seeing Ivy pull herself out of that and um, set, try, to, try to overcome her past and become the person she wants to be has been absolutely wonderful. Um, I've gotten a lot of um, feedback from readers saying that, no, no, these two should be together. They need to be together. And, and I can agree with that, uh, except that Ivy, she, she's made huge steps. But um, I was concerned that if these two ladies got together as a happily ever after, that her past was going to um, kind of kind of ruin it. Um, that she'd fall back into old patterns and it would be exciting and fun to write. Um, And I didn't want to do that because I've seen Ivy grow. I've seen her become who she wants to be. And I couldn't risk Ivy becoming that person again that, that she was. And so I did try to make a clean break of it. And it's been hard because I didn't want to get rid of Ivy from the books. I needed to have her there. She was important to me and she was important to the readers. And um, I think the way I've kind of wrapped it up um, has worked. Uh, we'll see. I haven't got the readership feedback yet from this last book. It was important to me, though, that Ivy not end up with a guy. Um, she needed to find her soulmate, and it was going to be a woman. I've known that for a long time, um, and it needed to be someone that Ivy could still help and because Ivy needs needs to help somebody to feel good about herself. And she, she couldn't help Rachel anymore. So that was another reason why I kind of ended that relationship. Um, the end of the books to me have always been Rachel saving Ivy's soul. I mean, right from book number one, that was, that was going to be my ending. And so we do see a return of Ivy a little bit more in this last book. Um, We'll see how it goes. I'm I'm really anxious to see how the readers react to it. Well, I mean, speaking of that, you know, when we interviewed Charlene Harris, she said that she mentioned that some readers just had really over the top emotional uh, investment in who Sookie ended up with in the end. And have you had really, really extreme like, people who have really, really extreme views about who um, Rachel? Um, you know what? Um, I did a couple years ago. Um, one of the responsibilities of the storyteller is to 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 know their audience and be able to tell the story that they want but remember that they are still a storyteller and they have a responsibility to their readers um it's a fine balance and i watched what happened with charlene and i felt really bad for her because i know that when you invest as a writer that much time into something that you want to end it the way you feel it should end and there's no reason that she should feel like she needs to change it but i watched what happened and i said i i I can't let this happen to me because i love these books too much so i spent a lot of attention on making sure that the reader knew where I was going. I wasn't going to tell them, you know, how we were going to get there, but I made sure they knew this is where we're going. This is where the story is headed. Um, you know, Ivy's important, but Ivy and Rachel's story has got to part. They're they're always going to be together in some way or fashion, but but if it's not the way you want it, 
this is why. And so I was careful to tell the reader ahead of time why this was happening and why this this couldn't happen and why this had to happen. Um, fortunately, I write far ahead of my, my work schedule, so I was able to go back several books at this point and do some tweaks. And I think it worked. Um, I am also very active with my readership. Um, they know where they can find me. They know where they can ask me questions. I'm on my Facebook. I'm on my blog. That's me answering those posts. That's not my assistant because I don't have one. <laughs> and and I have seen, you know, at first there was a big flurry of, you know, you better not do this. You better not do that. But then they got the next book and they read it and they, they saw where the storyline was going. And it's calmed down quite a bit. Um, of course, I won't know until that book comes out and, you know, the feedback starts. And I know I'm going to get some flack from a few people. Uh, but for the most part, if you end the, end the series right, um, there, should be, there should be no regrets. Well, yeah. And I mean, writing a 13-book series just seems like a really ambitious sort of a project. <laughs> uh, I mean, just looking back on it now, do you have any advice you would give or any thoughts Holy about writing that many cow. books? Um, my advice would be don't ever sit down and try to plot out a 13 book series. Um, break it up. Uh, I would, I would never net when when dead, Witch walking was accepted. I thought, yay, three books. Hmm. I can tell a good story in three books. And then it was extended to six. And then it was like, Oh, I can slow down. I can take my time. And, and, you know, every, every renewal, it was like, ooh, now I can explore this and I can explore that. I never expected 13 books. I mean, it has been an honor and a treat to be able to work with these same characters in the same world for so long. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, though, because it does take up your time. And all those ideas that have been building up for the last 10 years, you know, they're going to come out eventually, but, but you know, Locking them up in a cabinet is it, it, it's very frustrating at times. Um, but uh, I would never, in a million years, sit down and say, "Okay, in book one I'm going to do this, in book five I'm going to do this, and then in book thirteen it all comes together." You, you can't do that. The writing is so fluid and organic that I don't even try to plot out the book that um, I'm not working on. I, I love to plot. I mean, I'm a religious plotter, but I only plot the book I'm working on because I know that when I get to the end, there's going to be so many threads and, and trails and new ideas that I'm going to want to bring to that new book that it would be useless to try to figure out where it was going until I was actually ready to move forward. Yeah, actually, I heard you say in an interview that Jack L. Chalker taught you how to write a series. Could you say? Oh, yeah, The Well World. Oh, that was my favorite series when I was growing up. And um, he, I learned from him how to carry on a series and how to keep it fresh and entertaining and make it um, uh, meaningful um, to to the world you're living in. Um, one of the books, um, they've got a drug called Sponge, and I, I was just fascinated with the idea of that. And so that's probably why I've got Brimstone in my series. Um, uh, 
And in fact, the one I'm working on right now has a drug in it. And I'm going to say it's probably his fault. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But being able to see his books, um, you know, they'd come out one every year. And every year when it would come out, I'd read the whole series up to that point. And so, um, you know, I've read the first one many, many times. And and just seeing how he tied them all together um, just was is kind of my backbone there. Mm. Well, so when you say the one you're working on now, you want to tell us a bit more about that? Um, I am working right now on, you know, it doesn't even have a title. Um, I haven't shared it with my editor yet. I mean, I'm on the cusp of starting to share this with, with other professionals and it's, and I'm really excited about it. So I'm not really saying a whole bunch because there could be big changes in it, but Perry kind of picks up where Rachel left off. Um, Perry is in the top of her field. Um, she has a very dangerous job. It's exciting. She knows who she is. Um, and she's good at it. She's got everything the way she wants. And then by page eight, the rug gets pulled out from under her and she realized that she's not the person she thought she was. And then it goes from there. Um, but it's much faster paced. Um, it's, it's more thrillerish. If, if I, if I have to, you know, put a genre tag on it, it's more thriller than urban fantasy, although I cannot stray far from my, my roots. And so there is, I don't want to call it magic. Um, I like calling it accelerated science. Um, it's when science has gone so far that these abilities that science has given us look like magic. Um, it's, it's out there. Uh, a lot of the popular movies right now have it. Um, it's kind of like a mix between Born Identity and Minority Report. I mean, it's, it's really cool. It's fast. And it's. And I'm also writing from third person now. Um, I feel like I've got a lot that I can say to the male readership. Um, and I think writing from this first person female perspective, I have a lot of male readers. Um, a third of my readership is male, but I want to tap into it a little bit more. And I'm hoping this helps. I mean, I've, I've got a, um, two black belts, in, one in Hapkido and one in Taekwondo. And, um, and so I like bringing this to my fight scenes. You can kind of see it in Rachel, but in, in this new Perry novel, I can really. Um, bring it out a little bit more because, like I said, her job is very high risk. Yeah, and you mentioned, I mean, that the book kind of draws inspiration from Minority Report, Paycheck, Inception, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Do you ex- expect this to um, appeal more to to, to sort of um, reach reach a science a more science fiction oriented audience? I'm hoping that it does. Um, I love the science, you know, but the fantasy works for me, but my favorite movie is probably Blade Runner. I mean, I I love getting into the science stuff and um, Paycheck and Minority Report and Born Identity. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, but that's not bread and butter. I mean, I I love those movies. Um, If it if it's got Tom Cruise in it, you know, uh, I, I'm there watching it because he always plays really interesting, weird characters that that jump out and, and say, this is different. Um, and that's really kind of my target. I, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, it's kind of funny. I wanted to ask you about this. And this is kind of like something out of a Philip K. Dick story. But you've talked about when you started the Kim Harrison uh, pseudonym that you had to keep that secret for a while. And so it was kind of you would have to tell people, like, don't call me, call me Kim. Don't call me Don. You can't blow my cover, sort of. (laughs) Yes, I had to do that for a couple of years. We kept a really tight lid on it um, for quite a while. I was really surprised. Um, there were people in the publishing industry who knew, of course, but they kept it very quiet. Some uh, At the time, I was actually living in South Carolina, um, very rural. And um, if people knew I was writing about witches and vampires, you know, now, now it's more acceptable. But 10 years ago, it, they would frown at you. I mean, these are people, these are God-fearing people who go to church twice a week, you know, Wednesday and, and, and Sunday and, and, you know, don't work on Sunday. And, you know, I'd get weird looks just because I was out in my garden working on Sunday. I mean, God-fearing people. Hmm. And if they knew I was writing witches and vampires, I would have no friends at all. <laughs> so I did, I, I was very eager to keep it quiet as well. Um, but as time went on, it became more acceptable and, you know, attitudes shift and change a little bit. And, uh, it, you know, I was able to let that go. It's, it's been really nice the last couple years to be able to, to use Kim and Dawn interchangeably. Um, it, it's, it's out. I did a, a Locus um, article where it was like publicly announced, um, which was kind of nice. Um, I have a feeling that eventually, maybe with the beginning of this new series, that the wig is going to finally go away. I'm I'm ready to get rid of the wig, and I think I can do that now. Um, the the Harrison books are so well established that mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no chance that the Dawn stuff is going to interfere, and um, I'm ready to to do that. And I'm looking forward to it, but not for this last tour. This last tour, I will still have the red wig. <laughs> Were there any times in that period where your cover was almost blown or, you know, someone started, someone got a, uh, an inkling or anything like that? There were a couple times. Um, and I did have to delete a couple posts here and there. Um, but people were, were really understanding about it. And um, now my biggest problem is that I don't know when I'm out doing public stuff, if people know me as Kim or if people know me as Dawn. Um, Just the other day, I was on a phone conversation uh, prepping for another interview. And it was like, I I introduced myself as Dawn. And the woman was like, well, when Kim gets here, we'll get started. And it's like, (laughs) no, 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 no. (laughs) This is the same person. So that has been a challenge to know, you know, who's who. It's really kind of interesting. A lot of people think it's weird, but you know, people have so many names anyway. I mean, you, you can, I am, I am Dawn. I am wife. I am mom. You know, I am sister. Um, I am daughter. We, we call ourselves many things. So Kim has kind of evolved into um, my, my work name, so to speak. When I'm out pushing the books and I'm at events, I'm Kim. Um, if somebody calls me Dawn, that's cool, but it really doesn't matter. And I know, uh, so I know some people are going to want me to ask about film and TV adaptations. Um, do you mm. want to talk a bit about the the CW adaptation? And... Yeah, CW had the rights for a short time. 
Um, they've since reverted back to me. Uh, one of the stipulations that I gave my, uh, one of the few stipulations I gave my agent was that if somebody was interested in the hollows, that I didn't want my rights to sit in a drawer year after year after year. Well, they just sat on it and did nothing. I've seen other authors do that. And sometimes it pays off. Um, but I didn't want to lose control for that amount of time. So CW had it. Um, they had somebody working on the pilot. Um, I liked the direction they were going. It was a very narrow slice of the hollows that they were focusing on, but it, it was okay. Um, but the they kept asking for less and less magic, and I think everybody kind of lost interest in it because one of the things that makes the hollows special is the magic mythology. And when that kind of got taken out, it was like anything else you'd see out there and they lost interest and the, the rights reverted back to me. Um, I'm open to having the hollows, you know, picked up again, big screen, small screen. Um, but I'm, I'm not really pinning my hopes on it. I think that this new thing I'm working on with Perry has a lot more marketability at this point. Um, it's going it fills a niche that's there. That's hard to write in, uh, and I, I'm really anxious to see if I'm able to pull it off. Now, when they wanted less magic, was that just mostly because of the special effects budget sort of stuff? I have no idea. Um, the, the communication really wasn't as good as I hoped it would be. Um, so I, I really don't have a good answer for that. Because I heard you say that they were going to take out Jinx. It's like, yeah, yes, take they out Jinx. were. Yes, they were going to take out Jinx. And um, I'm not, and I think they were going to take out Jinx because they were afraid he was going to make the whole thing look silly. And it's true. A four inch man with wings could really make it look silly. Um, it, it depends heavily on how he's treated. And um, if, if you've heard the audio books, that my 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 reader is um Gavin Miss Gavin and Marguerite Gavin and she does a wonderful job of making Jinx who is small so she she has a high voice but she makes him sound serious and and someone who counts and someone who matters and someone who's dangerous and that's really hard to do and that was one of the reasons why I was so glad to get her as a reader. Now translating that same um, power and intensity to you know a small screen might be more difficult so I can see why they took him out but by taking him out they took out the heart of of the hollows. I mean he holds everything together. He is the everyman. And when he's gone, there's, it, it would be harder for the, the person watching to actually identify with the whole crew because he is the one who is like everybody else, even though he's four inches tall and has wings. <laughs> okay. And then another thing I wanted to ask you about is you say that you don't like coffee and I also don't like coffee and it makes me feel really <laughs> like, a, like an in the minority sometimes. So I was glad to hear someone else doesn't like coffee. Yes. Yep. I think I've had coffee twice in my life and both times it's ended up back in the cup. 
Uh, my husband likes it. I can't stand it. I am a tea drinker, um, which may be looked down upon, but, you know, hey, it, it, it's it's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And, and there's the demon coffee in the Hollow series, right? Yes, yes. Um, oh, let me see if I can remember it. Two shots of espresso, Italian blend, uh, no light on the froth. Um, with a splash of cinnamon on it, yes. Um, that's actually how I take my chai tea. So that I've every time Rachel is, you know, rhapsodizing over coffee, that's me really enjoying a good cup of tea. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, looking at people's Twitter accounts, uh, I'm struck by how often they mention coffee drinker as you know one of the things they mention in their 100 character <laughs> bio. Uh, and I, I, as a non-coffee drinker, I just don't get it. But, you know, it's obviously central to a lot of people's identity. Yeah, I never noticed that. I'm going to have to pay more attention. Um, okay, well, actually, speaking of Twitter, I did want to ask your your Twitter handle is Burning Bunnies. Yeah. Uh, I was just curious oh, <laughs> what the origin yes. of that is. Burning Bunnies. Um, I think of um, ideas as... Um, sweet and innocent. Um, they're like little bunnies. Um, they, they, you see them there. They're sweet. They're innocent. They're soft. They're harmless. You pick them up. You take your, your bunny idea in and you pet it. And you feed it carrots and you take care of it. And um, eventually, like bunnies do, you get more, more ideas and more ideas. And pretty soon your desk is overrun with burning bunnies and you, you corral them up with pen and ink and you put them in a box and you send them off to New York where they just let them go rampant. Hmm. And eventually they package them up and put them on a shelf where people walk by and pick up these, these sweet, innocent, unsuspecting little books and open them up and hopefully if there's luck, they will start their own burning bunnies from that one. So that's that's kind of what I think about burning bunnies. <laughs> um, all right. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time here. Do you have any uh, final thoughts, anything, any other projects you want to mention, anything like that? Oh, you know, I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, just that I'm not sure when this is going to go on air, but I am going out on tour starting the 9th of September. Um, I've got a, a list of events on my website, kimharrison.net. I'm, I'm going, oh my gosh, it's a huge tour. I'm, I won't be back for, let's say they're sending me out for two weeks and then I'm going to go out again, um, the last week in September to hit the West coast. And my big bash is going to be, um, in Ann Arbor, on Devil's Night, which should be a whole lot of fun. I'm not sure exactly what we're all going to be doing at that point, but but there's extra prizes and giveaways, and hopefully we can get some readers to do some costumes and some readings from the book. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun, but I, I've got a hellacious September, October to get through. But fortunately, I like getting out and seeing the readers, so it should be a lot of fun, too. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Kim Harrison, and her new book is called The Witch with No Name. So Kim and or Don, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Kim Harrison for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be discussing extreme weather in science fiction books and movies. And I'm joined by three guest geeks. 
So first up, we've got Tobias Bakel making his seventh appearance on the show. He's the author of the Xenowealth series of space adventure novels and the New York Times bestselling Halo novel, The Cole Protocol. His latest book is Hurricane Fever, a sequel to his 2012 eco-thriller, Arctic Rising. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Paolo Bacigalupi making his third appearance on the show. He's the author of the mega-award-winning novel The Wind-Up Girl, as well as the young adult novel Shipbreaker, which was a National Book Award finalist and New York Times bestseller. His new novel The Water Knife, set in a lawless, water-starved American Southwest, will be published by Knopf this spring. So, Paolo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today for the very first time is Ramez Nam, author of the science fiction novels Nexus and Crux. Nexus was one of NPR's best books of 2013 and tied with Cory Doctorow's Homeland for the 2014 Prometheus Awards. Ramez is also a noted futurist and the author of nonfiction books such as More Than Human, Embracing the Promise of Biological Enhancement, and The Infinite Resource, The Power of Ideas on a Finite Planet. So, Ramez, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Great to be here. All right, so uh, we're going to talk about extreme weather. And I think the thing in pop culture that's familiar to most people on this subject is the movie The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, so, Toby, why don't we start with you? What did you think of the movie of The Day After Tomorrow? It was uh, really painful. <laughs> it was a very painful experience. I remember, like, so That's, many people who wanted kind. to have... I'm being very kind. So many people who wanted to have a discussion about climate change geared up for that movie and, and sort of tried to use it as a, as a pivot, you know, point or a, a sort of locus to talk about these issues. And it was just sort of the worst possible, you know example to use to try and have that conversation because it was such a laughable movie i thought it made that conversation actually kind of hard to have yeah no i think it actually discredited the entire concept of climate change <laughs> just all in one mega block buster <laughs> right. fail well boom well when we talk it's like a lead balloon <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk about i mean just i mean for people who haven't seen the movie or maybe don't remember it that well what are some of the biggest gaffes that it makes well hmm <laughs> so, so it tries to depict this idea of it tries to depict this idea of extremely rapid climate shift, which in theory can happen, but it just goes way, way overboard to the point of of non believability for anybody. Yeah, there's 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 like little seeds of almost scientific truth. You know, there's this concern about what happens if like the North Atlantic pump shuts down and the the ocean stops circulating. What does that do, or what does that mean? Or, um, you know, there's there's pieces that are almost legitimate in terms of like when we look at climate change and and the complex systems uh, that climate sort of connects to, and it's it's almost reaching towards that, but then it just creates this super vortex of cold air and, you know, it's just ridiculous. Although, you know, as, as someone who spent last winter in New York city, it wasn't that ridiculous because there was, <laughs> <laughs> and if it had just been cold winter comes then fine, but no, it's like, it's like everybody freezes all in an instant, you know, it's like, you know, and that's that thing where it's like this, this one mega event um, instead of the death of a thousand cuts. And I think that that's far more, when you talk about extreme weather and stuff, it's like, you know, one, one thing happens and then you get hit by something else and you get hit by something else. But, but a giant freeze, um, that's, that's so complete that, uh, that essentially it ushers in a new ice age instantaneously. Um, you know, it, it just, just stop now you're hurting me. Mm. 
But I mean, that's sort of what you expect from a Hollywood movie, right? Because it's hard to show stupidity. Sure, I mean, that's absolutely. I always expect stupidity from. Well, but it's hard movies, to show but... the climate changing <laughs> over a century in the course of a feature film, right? Or, or that's well, that's dramatically hard to do. I think that that's a failure of Hollywood's imagination, honestly. I mean, the you know the idea that you you um, need to sort of first of all that a climate change movie has to be set in the present and that all of the impacts happen in the present. It's it's sort of the the fullest failure of science fictional thinking you could possibly have. Um, it's far more interesting to set something. You could set something within the next twenty five years, the next thirty, the next forty, where the world would be recognizably. Um, our world, and yet you could change it a great deal and have people simply living inside of a changed circumstance. Um, and that I think that would be far more visceral and, and real without having to sort of say, hey, look, mega event, here it comes. Well, I mean, Toby, my you, opinion. Yeah, I mean, Toby, you were saying that there was some, I mean, there was some amount of expectations around this movie before it was coming out. I mean, do you agree like, with like what, what Paolo's saying? Like, what were you kind of hoping the movie would be? Well, I mean, knowing that it was going to be a big Hollywood blockbuster and seeing some of the previews, I kind of didn't have any hopes at all. <laughs> sort of is, it's the, the, the writing equivalent of it was, you know, is being done on, on the sci-fi channel right now with these million dollar movies that are sort of like, you know, Sharknado. <laughs> and so, you know, when you have the hundred million dollar equivalent of Sharknado and everyone starts getting excited and saying, maybe we can use this as a way to start conversations about global warming. It's like someone like, you know, grabbing Sharknado and saying, maybe we can have a real discussion about, you know, shark attacks <laughs> using this movie. You sort of have this moment of going like, you know, let's, let's step back from this. It probably says more about the desperation of environmentalists to have something that connects in any way to popular culture so they can try to explain their perspective than it does anything about like, you know, the movie itself as a as a a, a, a sort of a parable of climate change or anything. <laughs> really? That's that's so desperately true. I think it's somewhat true. And I, and I think in we do see that in environmentalism there is a problem when you sort of when you overstate what's going to happen and it doesn't come true. I think fortunately people get the day after tomorrow was just a bad sci-fi movie and wasn't <laughs> really like prognostication or prediction of what was going to happen. Um, and I, I do think Apollo's right that maybe we should expect more from Hollywood, but even so, I, I do think it speaks to a limitation of what you can get across in a two hour film versus a novel that might take you 10 hours to read. You definitely have more room for subtlety and explanation in a book. Sure. You know, uh, one of the examples of, uh, so, so the problem is that in fiction, you do, you know, want to seek out this sort of like big event that is sort of, and particularly with Hollywood screenwriting, there's, there's this, uh, definite frame that people like. Um, but with a lot of good research, and if people were more familiar with science fiction, and this is where we can throw out some, some titles of some books, I mean, had those screenwriters been actually a little bit more familiar with some of the stuff that's gone on in fiction. I think there are ways that they could have created catastrophe in a way that that would have been something you can wrap a movie around without the the complete, you know, failures of that movie. I mean, we just had Superstorm Sandy provide a tremendous example, unfortunately, of what heavy weather in a sort of climate changing world looks like and you can build a movie around that i mean the 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 fishing the movie about the the perfect storm was the mm. title of the movie mm -hmm. you know you build something like a movie like a perfect storm around a discussion of climate change and you would have a, a vehicle that would be able to delve into the science and, and look at things and i'm and if you wanted to do something like that you could also look at uh bruce sterling's novel quote unquote heavy weather with uh 
which is the title of the phenomenon we're talking about, which has an example where you, he kind of takes like the polar vortex we've been having and takes it up a whole notch and gives us an example of what, you know, a catastrophic moment of if the jet stream has changed dramatically, you know, you could have, uh, you know, some severely catastrophic events that can be fictionalized, you know, in small amounts of time. I mean, one of the things that's sort of interesting, you, you mentioning that uh, the idea of the jet stream sifting, and we have those instances of the winters becoming very, very uh, intense at times, um, you know, and it's interesting, you know, that I think it, in some ways, it's, a, it's actually a storytelling failure more than anything else that, that a Hollywood scriptwriter apparently can't understand that simply having your electricity go out in the middle of winter is a serious problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to- Toby mentioned uh, Hurricane Sandy, and Ramez, in your email to me, you mentioned that as well. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, I had an experience, and I think Toby might have had a, a sort of slightly similar experiences. In my uh, my sci-fi books are not really about climate change, but they're in the future. So uh, William Gibson said something about his next science fiction novel. Someone asked him, is it about climate change? He said, no, but it's science fiction. It's in the future. So, of course, climate change is in it. So there's a little bit of climate change in, in mine. So my second novel, I, I sat down, I wrote a scene where it's a, it's a warmer world, so a, a late-season hurricane at the very end of October, uh, maybe like Halloween and then November 1st, hits the eastern seaboard and messes with a presidential election. And I'm like, this is brilliant. No one's going to expect this. It's, you know, very tail end of the hurricane season. It hits D.C. And then like three weeks later, Hurricane Sandy happened. I'm like, damn it. Reality <laughs> is catching up with me. <laughs> Uh, and Toby, did you do you have similar? You, you have a similar experience. You know the uh, the the outline and the details of Hurricane Fever, which was my my latest novel, were being kind of hammered together uh, right before Hurricane Sandy hit. And there are these moments where you're working on it and shaking your head and, and thinking, like, you know, just because the you know the fact that it takes a while to get a book out there to bookstores, people will you know, obviously think I, you know, I'm riffing completely off of Sandy, even though this is all stuff that is, you know, that I've been worrying about since well before Sandy. Uh, Toby, you'd also said some stuff about uh, how the Arctic, uh, the stuff that you wrote in Arctic Rising looked like incredible sci-fi to you, and then that's changed over time. Since oh my gosh. Came out. I mean, when I, when, 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 Carl Schrader and I sat down in 2007, I think it was, we were kind of bemoaning the lack of science fiction that tackled climate change in any way. We felt that, uh, as we were looking around, that there was this really big kind of moment on our horizon that is something that we're trying to grapple with, scientists are trying to grapple with, and that as science fiction as a whole wasn't spending a lot of time grappling with. And Paolo and I have also sat down and talked about this, and I know Mez, you and I have sat down and talked about this. And But back in 2007, Carl and I were casting around ideas, and we came up with writing a short story at first to sort of talk about what happens after the polar ice cap completely melts, which at the time we thought was a really science fictional thing. You know, the IPCC was not coming out with, like, you know, complete 100% summer melts at that time even, let alone winter melts. And we just started off with the assumption, what if it's just an ocean up there? What if it's all completely gone year-round? What does the world look like at that point? And we started to play, you know, play the scenario out for a short story. And I went back to Carl later in 2008 and said, hey, do you mind if I write a whole novel stealing some of these ideas that we were, you know, kind of tossing out at each other? And now that I'd uh, 
gone and done some more research, I found that places like um, Task Force Climate Change, which is the U.S. Navy's unit that sits down and, and thinks about what that impact will be, had actually come up with a lot of the same issues. So, you know, looking at this stuff, I just went, okay, here it is. Let's play with it. And when I started writing that novel, I called it science fiction because I thought, you know, the idea of completely eliminating the polar ice cap was science fictional. That's pretty wild because none of the stuff I was reading, none of the literature, you know, a lot of people who say climate, you know, who criticize climate change, uh, talk about the fact that like, you know, oh, they're, they're, they're way too pessimistic. I'm like, these guys are way too optimistic. IPCC was, was calling for, you know, possibly ice-free summers being kind of like the wildest thing when I started writing. And so I started out with the science fictional scenario being no polar ice cap. And by the time the book was in copy edits, IPCC was saying at some point they were willing to call a completely ice-free winter as well at some point in the human future as their worst case scenario. And it had gone from being completely science fictional and scientists had it off the table to being in their projections as a possibility within the time I wrote that novel. And that's just like a, you know, a year and a half. Uh, it was interesting, just that feeling of like when you're writing science fiction and then you feel like you're being caught by by the present moment um, with The Water Knife, which is right now in copy edits. And uh, it's been extremely frustrating for me. It's, it's a very strange thing to be watching sort of a mega drought uh, developing in the Southwest United States when you're writing about a futuristic mega drought and feeling like, you're being overtaken by events. Um, and, you know, it, this is, this is something that like, you know, the, the Southwestern United States has been sort of vulnerable to, to water scarcity for a long time. And the climate projections sort of say that, that it should anticipate more water scarcity, but then, uh, you know, the difference between that being a theoretical thing when I was back, as Toby was saying, when I was writing the first short story set in this world, I think that was probably, that was the Tamarisk Hunter. And that was probably back in around maybe 2007 or 2006. Uh, you know, it was just sort of an interesting piece of speculation. And, uh, you know, you knew that there was some uh, drought potential, but you just didn't, weren't looking at that really, really long-term uh uh, absolute water scarcity sort of situation. And so um, now with the water knife uh, about to come out, there's this massive drought this year. And I'm feeling like, God, by the time this thing comes out, people are going to be like, yeah, drought. So what? We know all about it. <laughs> Paul, I think the good news and the bad news is the drought's just going to get worse. So. Thanks. Yeah, no, no. Well, it's also sort of funny because, you know, you're writing about climate, but you find yourself actually sort of hoping that weather will support your premise. And it's a, it's a silly sort of thing. It's like, no, this, you know, any individual moment of weather is not actually what you're interested in. You're really interested in the long passage of time and the, the averages over time. Um, but, but we tend to focus in on weather events when we talk about climate. I mean, do you, do you guys feel then pressure to keep upping the ante in terms of how dramatic the scenario is because the real world events keep catching up with the less extreme projections? More just pressure to just get the fucking book out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a danger with upping the ante too. And the, the yeah. same danger that happens to, to a movie like Day After Tomorrow happens in books too. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of bugs me. Like there's a, a, you know, a very popular science fiction writer or more than one whose, you know, books set in the 21st century have sea level rising by 30 and 40 feet. And it's actually a very popular conception among people that sea level is going to rise by 30 or 40 feet. But that actually really bugs me in, in 
fiction because that's not anything like what we expect or what's plausible. And so I really prefer seeing books that uh, make, as we were just kind of talking about, that, that make something like the lights going out as scary as it is. Or I thought, you know, and it turns out you only need a two or three foot storm surge to really make things exciting for a coastal <laughs> city in a lot of cases. But, yeah, you know. exactly. Like Toby makes the the Arctic being ice free or, you know, what we will eventually call category six hurricanes really scary. Or Paolo does an amazing job in in the wind up girl, and I don't even know what year that's supposed to be in. I never name the years in my question mark. <laughs> question mark, I had, question mark. I had years in Arctic Rising and I took them all out because yeah. it was happening too fast. So it feels like in the in the wind up girl, the seas have risen just a few feet, but Bangkok is a city that sits at sea level. So you can right. see the the damage that that or the, the risk that that causes to a city like Bangkok. And even better, it's sinking because they're pumping out their groundwater at the same time. <laughs> Like, you know, like Miami and like some other places we can name. So that sort of thing that is much more plausible, I think, hits home. So it's way better to take a plausible issue and play it out to show how bad it is, I think, than to, to turn the knob too far on implausibility. I mean, could, could you just say a bit more about why is the 30 or 40 foot sea level rise implausible? Like, what is the, the science um, behind that whole issue? It's particularly uh, so the, in the near term, I think he's saying. Like yeah, in it, the next 30 or 40 years, you just aren't going to see that. Yeah, we'll get it, but not in the near term. So in the near term, uh, and here's a funny thing uh, most people don't realize. So the projections for this century are uh, one to two meters of sea level rise, probably closer to one meter. So that's you know three feet to six feet by 2100. And most of that actually is not by melting ice. Most of that is by thermal expansion of the I ocean. I love this, yeah. As it gets warmer. <laughs> And then a little bit is by melting ice. And we we do know things like we see the there was a paper last few months about how the Western Antarctic ice sheet melt might be unstoppable now because of the particular shape of the train it sits on. Once it starts sliding, it won't stop. But the the fine print on that paper is that it'll you know it'll eventually add another that sheet will eventually add another three to six feet itself. But it's projected to take something like 800 years plus to slowly slide into the ocean. So those things, there's another like 270 feet of sea level that Antarctica and Greenland uh, and all the world's glaciers can add. But even though we are making it hot enough to melt all that ice, you can put an ice cube in water warm enough to melt it. It still takes a while for the ice cube to melt. So we're getting the planet warm enough to melt all that ice, but it still takes centuries to melt that much ice, mm-hmm. essentially. But I mean, say, say, you know, science fiction writers are, sto- are setting stories set in like a Star Trek future that's two or 300 years in the future. Um, yeah. Then, then you can start legitimately talking. And like, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson in 2312 talks about, you know, most of Florida being underwater. Uh, and, and sea level rises of 30 feet and stuff like that. And then, you know, in 200 years, 300 years, that's more scientifically plausible. But if you're writing a novel set in 2050 and you're showing more than like two feet of sea level rise, three feet if we really got the estimates wrong, then you're exaggerating just for, uh, for convenience or ease of you as the writer. And I think you're kind of blowing it a little bit. Uh, well, I mean, speaking of Kim Stanley Robinson, do you guys want to talk about his Science in the Capital series, which is a, a novel series, which is sort of like The Day After Tomorrow, but sort of intellectually serious, right? I mean, that was Stan uh, really, yeah, trying to be intellectually serious. His protagonists are 
scientists, one who works for the National Science Foundation and one who's a uh, works in policy in the White House, and they're dealing with the ocean, the thermohaline current shutting down and the ocean heat pump shutting down. But it's all like what actual people working in D.C. might do as opposed to shootouts and policy action thrillers. heroes. <laughs> yeah. It is a policy thriller. Uh, you know, the, the, the two things it deals with that, that are, are things that are not emphasized necessarily are, and that are interesting and should be talked about more is one is the heat pump shutdown, which creates counterintuitively. And, and you run into this when you're dealing with, uh, sort of, you know, denialists. Um, there, there are things that are, that happen that actually create colder spots. And, and, and that's one of the things that'll happen is that, you know, with that, with, with the, uh, you know, with that uh, current shutting down, you get like the east coast of the U.S. dropping in temperature quite a bit. And because the warm water from the Caribbean isn't being pulled up and distributed around there. And you get, so you get like, you know, a frozen D.C., which is one of the things he takes a lot of time portraying what that would be like. And a lot of politicians uh, spend a lot of time saying, you know, being be- bewildered by the fact that D.C. is getting cold because isn't that proof if everything's freezing that there's no global warming, you know, right. that, that and, weather and, slash trend thing is hard for people. Right. And, and as it, as it always becomes difficult during the winter, when we have a cold winter and we're like, Oh no, climate change doesn't exist. Cause clearly it's cold this winter. And it's like, well, actually the, the jet stream has shifted and there is more the, the Arctic is, is super toasty right now, but like everything <laughs> else is cold. <laughs> Right. The Arctic being super toasty still means that when the Arctic air gets swept down here, we're freezing our asses off. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing he talks about a lot is uh, displacement as a result of rising seas and heavy weather, because a tremendous amount of the human population lives coastally. We all pretty much cluster coastally and near areas where we traditionally have been able to ship things using the, the power of sail historically and then you know, just sea routes and shipping. And so we cluster on coasts, which means that sea rise has a tremendous impact on us in, in the future. And so he talks about displaced peoples and the impact that that will be having on, you know, different countries because people will be complete refugee populations. And we're already seeing that, uh, you know, he did it science fictionally, but now we have, uh, there's a group of Pacific Islanders that purchased a tremendous amount of real estate in Australia in anticipation of their islands being completely sunk. And they've moved the next generation of kids into the Australian public school system to get them used to living there, so that when the rest of them all have to move and lose their ancestral homeland, you know, the culture shock won't be so great. And you read a story like that, and you're just like, whoa! You know, like, there are people right now that are actively having to plan and change their their culture and their traditions and their entire way of life as a result of things that are happening right now. And I mean, do you think that that, do you think that kind of complex, slow moving catastrophe policy wonk sort of story? Um, is there any way to make that, to get that out to a broader audience? Do you think it will ever be filmed or like made into a TV miniseries or is it just too complicated and, you know, requires too much thought? We love the West wing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a good writer can do anything. Yeah. I think that this is, I mean, we, we, we watch all sorts of fairly quiet, highly intellectual stories that are driven a lot by, you know, the wants and needs of, of, of a set of characters rather than by some sort of big budget effects. And, you know, I think that, 
um, you know, the number of stories that you see, especially on television, where you tell long, complex stories that are mostly about people, you know, coping with their lives in a variety of ways. I think you could open up a huge amount of uh, a territory to talk about something like climate change that way. But can we get the writers from The Wire to do something about this? Right. I mean, wow, that would be amazing. I mean, if we can do really complex, you know, drug policy and school policy and, and urban poverty discussions in a TV series that's amazing to watch, like, we can do this. Yeah. You know, the thing is, like, there's a tr- – here's the, here's the sad thing is that, you know, as a, as a writer, you go looking for conflict. The reason we write about action and war and destruction and all these things is because there's a tremendous amount of human tragedy in those, and human tragedy, of course, is conflict. Conflict is a tremendous story vehicle. And as someone who is, you know, taking a look at some of these things with these echo thrillers, I think there's a tremendous amount of conflict to be found within the impact that climate change has on our, on our society. If it didn't have a potential for a lot of conflict, you know, task force climate change from the U.S. Navy, which is a, you know, branch of the military one, would not be investing a lot of time in trying to figure out what the heck happens and what the implications are militarily for climate change. And there is already a tremendous amount of conflict happening. You know, lawsuits that are happening where people in developing worlds are suing the developed world. There are, there's just a lot of conflict out there. And a lot of potentials for human stories to be told, I mean, and we're not telling them. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, honestly, you can look at Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath for a, you know, essentially a, 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 Ooh, a model climate story. Like, I mean, there, you know, here it is. You know, your farmland no longer is productive, and you have refugees on the move. And and what does this mean? And you know, you spend most of your time with this family, and you know, but you know, what puts them in motion is the devastation of a landscape that was productive for them. You know, that's funny, Paolo. My, my girlfriend, Molly, pitched me uh, that my next book should be The Grapes of Wrath Set in the Future Due to Climate Change. And I said, oh, that's really a Paolo book. You should <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the water night pretty much. I put all the Texans on the road, so. <laughs> I mean, are there other uh, books you guys want to mention? I mean, Ramez, you mentioned one to me um, by John Barnes called Mother of Storms. Yeah, Mother of Storms is a, actually it was the first book that ever uh, made clear to me uh, the risk of buried methane uh, in mm-hmm. the Arctic. Oh, and it's yeah. a risk this depresses yeah. the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm slightly less worried about it than I used to be, but it's still a, a big risk, I think. Or it's a, a maybe a low prior, low probability but very high impact risk. So methane is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas. In the first year, it's like 100 times more powerful than, than carbon dioxide, and there's a trillion tons of it buried beneath the Arctic. And so John Barnes has this climate thriller that's near future that starts with uh, a nuclear device going off and setting off a chain reaction that sets off all of this buried methane and then uh, leads to the worst hurricane season ever seen in the face of the planet Earth. And uh, it's a riveting read. And John is just somebody who throws in, throws in the kitchen sink as well. So it's got all kinds of stuff going on in it. It's a fantastic book, Mother of Vault, yeah, Mother of Storms. Fantastic book. That's one that uh, definitely had an impact on me as well. Uh, I mean, do you guys want to talk a bit more about why, like, how depressed should we be? I mean, because Paolo's, Paolo's <laughs> making it sound like we should be super depressed, and then Ramez is saying, well, only ninety percent depressed, or like, no, Ramez, he's always he's always very optimistic. <laughs> so, so as, as the, has faith in the human species. I don't know where he gets it from. I know that's so screwed up. <laughs> All right, so I'm the optimist. Let me let me say some things. As the optimist, let me say that 
that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, <laughs> and by this, here, so I'm the optimist, meaning like I write a lot about solar. I write a lot about renewable energy. I write a lot about how we've overcome. We overcame problems like the ozone layer being deleted, depleted. Uh, we had uh, mass. We had smog in the 1970s, as bad as China's, basically in some of our big cities. The Cuyahoga River caught on fire in 1969. Like things in the environment used to really suck. I just tweeted something this morning about uh, California blue whales were near extinction and now they're back to basically record numbers in California only because we passed environmental protection laws. Um, so we, meanwhile, we we're have, acidifying the entire ocean, but let's not yeah, worry about that exactly. too much. <laughs> basically, what we protect, we do okay on. What we don't pass laws to protect, we suck at. And right? therein lies the rub. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the thing about climate that is, uh, there's two things about it that are really unique. One is it's the, the biggest thing we've ever faced because it's energy and energy is the bedrock of everything. So it'll be the hardest fix. Uh, and we're not on track to hit the two degrees Celsius limit that we've sort of drawn a line in the sand. It's sort of an arbitrary place, but it's a line in the sand that we've had this much and no more. And even two degrees C is more damage, and we're not on track to stop there. So we're not doing so great right now. Um, and two is that there's a whole lot of momentum in the system. So you build, you release some carbon dioxide right now, and on average, it will keep adding heat to the planet for about 100 years. You build a coal power plant right now, on average, it will keep operating for 50 years. So you build a coal power plant right now, and the carbon dioxide from it will keep warming up the planet for 150 years. So I, I, that's me being an optimist. I think we're going to turn the corner. We're going to go past 2 degrees Celsius. We will turn the corner, but not without doing more damage and without more scars on the planet that we will notice for multiple centuries to come. There's the optimistic. That's, that's, the, that's the optimistic outlook. So He's the optimist so of the three of us. The pessimistic worry. The pessimistic worry in my mind is that that uh, that we pass some point of no return. Um, that we we cross over some cliff point, some state change that happens, and and what we think of as being something that we've you know we started up the engine, it got going for a while, and but oh, we can slow it down, we can put the brakes on. Uh, I very much worry that that there are uh, state change scenarios where we just drive a train off a cliff instead, and then we're just in free fall. Um, we don't get a choice to put a brake on anymore. Um, and whether that's something, and and I, I worry like that we potentially will miss the narrative that matters most, whether that's ecosystems unraveling, whether that's something like ocean acidification, whether that's something like sudden methane releases that are much bigger and larger than we anticipate. Um, I, I worry about the, the you know, to, to quote Rumsfeld, the unknown unknowns. Um, and, uh, and, um, and also I worry um, a great deal about our ability as democracies to prioritize long-term uh, quality of life over short-term benefit. Um, and uh, we tend to uh, discount the value of future generations' quality of life um, in favor of our own uh, near-term benefit. And, and that doesn't seem to be something that, that we're very good at, at altering, short of something like the Cuyahoga River lighting on fire, where we're suddenly like, oh, gee, we're fucking ourselves up. Okay, well, now let's you know, install the, uh, the, uh, the EPA. That's a great idea. Let's you know, in, you know, create the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, do all these things to clean ourselves up. 
Um, but, you know, it's in reaction, actually, to something that's very close and very real to us. And climate change remains a highly abstracted, distributed uh, pain. And most of the pain is going to be actually um, discounted out onto uh, future generations instead of on us. And so um, I think that the impetus to change that is is difficult. Um, I think it's further uh, made difficult by the fact that there are many um, profit interests that really, really will be hurt if we try to actually do things about this. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, Ramez brought up the fact that we stopped uh, using CFCs, and there was actually a concerted sort of industrial effort to to prevent us from uh, regulating CFCs, and we, we pushed past that, and we did regulate. But, um, and so, you know, hey, great, we still have an ozone layer. That's awesome. Um, but uh, but I think that the the industries have become more disciplined and more effective in the ways that they uh, slow down policy changes that affect their profits. And I think you saw that play out in the, the amount of time that it's taken us in the United States even to come to grips with the idea that global warming, oh gosh, might exist. Um, and that makes me a little worried and cynical that there are actually specifically people who profit every quarter from us doing nothing and that they are, you know, partly in the holding the reins of government. You know, uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit, uh, you know, I thought that might be an interesting moment where we could actually have some, you know, uh, marketing and pivot points uh, about about global warming. It didn't happen, and that was one of those interesting moments for me where I where I started to believe a little bit more of what Paolo says, which is that the 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 people uh, the interests allied against making any changes have become a lot better at their at their spin. Um, in fact, Paolo's written a whole book about it uh, called The Doubt Factory, yeah. which is uh, really good and should be read by everyone uh, <laughs> because uh, uh, the stuff that it's riffing off of is the fact that there is a very large, you know, uh, there's a very large organization that is accreted around doing nothing. And a lot of arguments that you hear repeated by people who don't even realize they've picked them up as talking points about doing nothing because it's, you know, the safer, uh, smarter, more economically you know, uh, positive thing to do. Right. It turns out and, it's a pretty powerful thing to argue for political stasis. If you're arguing for stasis, you can always like pause. Let's just wait. Like, you know, well, the, the science isn't quite in. Let's just study the problem a little more. Have we analyzed all of the aspects? We really need to get everybody in the room to talk about this more. Let's talk for another year while we bank our next round of quarterly and, and, and annual profits. Well, pa Paolo, why don't you tell us then a little bit more about the doubt factory and just how are you dramatizing this situation in, in science fiction? Well, and so actually, uh, you know, th this isn't a uh, this isn't a science fiction book. Um, it's the first time I've written something that's a contemporary novel. It's a contemporary thriller, and it's all about public relations and the public relations industry. And um, I became really, really interested in the product defense industry. Um, and these are the PR professionals who help a big corporation defend dangerous products in the marketplace. Um, and they got their start with tobacco, um, and then they branched out and moved into other industries, the beryllium industry the nuclear industry, the asbestos industry. Um, and eventually they also ended up uh, dealing with uh, uh, petro products and the global warming uh, question. Um, but their, their playbook is, is always the same. And it's always, we need to put doubt about, put, we need to inject doubt into the debate. We need to make people doubt that cigarettes are dangerous. We need to make people doubt that the science is clear about global warming. And the longer we create doubt, 
as long as there's doubt in in your democracy, there's no pressure on politicians to make a policy change. Um, and so the key is always to keep enough doubt going that there's no clear pressure on politicians. And that gives politicians a lot of political cover to do nothing. And so then they only have to be reactive to their special special interest lobbyists. I mean, could, could you um, talk, though, about how, how, do you, how you're going to dramatize that in, in fiction? Then? Well, for me, this is a young adult novel. And so uh, the way I went after it was actually to uh, talk about a girl who uh, who's uh, very wealthy and very well off, and her father works in the doubt industry. And so all of the benefits of her life come from her father helping defend companies and defend their dangerous products. Um, and so it becomes a, a sort of a moral question about where do you take your prosperity from and how much are you complicit in in doing evil things? Um uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, and so she runs across other people who have been affected by her father's, uh, lobbying and his, her father's public relations practices and things like that. And so, uh, she ends up in a, in a space of having to make moral choices. Mm. All right. We're start, starting to run a little short on time here. I do want to cover a bunch more of these, uh, books. We had a bunch of listeners actually suggest some things we should talk about. Um, so Marcos Astorga mentioned Stephen Baxter's Flood and its sequel arc. He says they're two of the best extreme weather science fiction books out there. Um, Joseph Colby mentions J.G. Ballard's uh, a bunch of his books, including The Drowned World and also The Storm by George R. Stewart. Um, are you guys familiar with any of those? Or are there any other books along these lines you wanted to mention? I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's been sorry. a long time since I've read the J.G. Ballard uh, <laughs> books. But uh, that it speaks to uh, uh, the way these um things come and go in terms of marketing, right? Uh, during the 1970s, if you go back and read some of the anthologies, there was a lot more uh, discussion about environmentalism uh, for a brief period in the 1970s. In fact, there are a number of anthologies produced that are hard to find, but if you look on some of the out-of-print markets, you can find a number of environmentally-themed anthologies, which uh, basically stopped being done um, after the late 1970s, early 80s. Uh, for a long stretch there. We've gone, we've done like a 25, almost 30 year stretch without any, any sort of, uh, stuff being done, uh, of that frequency. Um, and I think, uh, some of the new wave riders were, were grappling with, with that stuff and, and dealing with it. And then it came, it went out of vogue for a while there. Uh, people, uh, some people complain about burnout. And of course, you know, some people have said, you know, uh, lefty politics, blah, blah, blah. And there's definitely a, a stronger, um, uh, economic uh, argument for for ditching it in terms of just sales when uh, the country seemed to quote unquote turn right with the Reagan administration, that sort of stuff fell out of fashion in in some circles, or the common wisdom became you couldn't sell it. Yeah. Um, now you if see you go people back complaining and, about dark science fiction. Oh, the science fiction isn't optimistic enough. It's not right, right, leading us in the to our bright future. That's a whole but, other topic. Yeah. Yeah. But if, if you go back, you can find that, that, you know, we have been trying to grapple with this for quite a long time and it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not new. And, and, uh, if you, if you spend some time, you can actually go back and find some really interesting literature, particularly around that period. All right. Well, Toby mentioned Sharknado and I did want to talk about that. So I want to mention Sharknado because I think it's interesting because they do in that movie, um, credit global warming. Or they attribute uh, attribute the shark uh, tornado to global warming, and this came came up a little bit earlier with the day after tomorrow. But do you think that that's on balance a good thing that it makes people more aware of the problem, even though it's this ridiculous thing? Or do you think it just connects it to something so ridiculous that it has no impact? 
it, it, I think it's I think it damages it. I think it just ma- it, it 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 makes it it pa- packages global warming in the same absurd space as flying sharks. Um, so. Uh, you know, it certainly like, trivializes it. it. It helps global warming jump the shark, if you will. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, how about Snowpiercer? I wanted to talk about that as well. This is a recent movie in which uh, a geoengineering scheme to address global warming has gone horribly wrong and resulted in the whole planet uh, being oh, oh. so cold that nothing can serve. Oh, Toby, you want to? My, my favorite quote about that is the reason you can tell Snowpiercer is science fiction is because a bunch of politicians get together and do some try to do some <laughs> <laughs> Someone said that on Twitter. I forget who, but I just thought that there we go. That's my statement. Yeah, I think it's a better better discussion of class than it is exactly. I mean, I, I feel like I still feel like environmentalists are sort of thrashing around trying to find anything <laughs> to say. Oh, look, here's something that you can look at, and this is going to make you know these issues seem more real and more important and more more uh, requiring our attention. Um, I mean, I, I feel like there was a while back. It was you know it was Hunger Games. It was like, oh, look, this terrible future is based on this idea that you know climate change and other disasters occurred, and now we have this terrible world. And I don't know. I just sort of feel like this is a plug-in. You know, like climate change could have been nuclear destruction. Could be. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You just need some reason to say. Oh, the world changed. Um, now the world's devastated. So we can have our apocalypse now and we can, you know, live in Mad Max or we can do whatever the thing is. Um, but it doesn't, it's, it's a, it's a, it's got no specificity to it in the sense of the, that the, the, the experiences of the character and their future, uh, actually are deeply connected to the consequences of global warming. Really. It's just, um, it's just a, a jumping off point so that, you know, so you can have a clean slate and start with something crazy. Um, all right. Well, Toby, I mean, we mentioned your new novel, Hurricane Fever, a little bit earlier. Do you want to say more about well, that? Yes. Uh, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I'll also say, Toby, we have uh, five free copies of Hurricane Fever to give away. So Fantastic. if people just want to email us at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com and just say, I want a free copy of Hurricane Fever, I will be giving those out. Um, but so, Toby, say a bit more about that book and, you know, get people all excited to email us and so they can get their free copies. <laughs> so Hurricane Fever you know, as much as we were talking about, you know, the, the way you find something to drag the conflict that, that climate change represents and use a viewpoint character to explore that, you know, the things that were fascinating me is, is that I grew up in the Caribbean and I often tend to feature Caribbean elements in a lot of my fiction. And so what I was trying to do was take a look at the impact heavy weather would have on the Caribbean. Having, you know, ended up being a refugee pretty much homeless, uh, and having to go live with my stepdad's parents after, you know, those three hurricanes passed through and, and left, you know, left the boat we lived on destroyed. I really wanted to sort of take that out and, and look at what that would look like in, in fiction. So hurricane fever is about, you know, uh, a series of hurricanes hitting the Caribbean, uh, category six, quote unquote hurricane, whereas, you know, now we only go up to category five and how the Caribbean has responded and adapted to that and how other parts of the world have adapted and responded to that. But, uh, the techno thriller part of it is what was also interesting to me. I basically, you know, when I grew up watching James Bond in the Caribbean, you know, it was interesting because there are all these Caribbean connections to James Bond, which is that Ian Fleming, you know, of course, stayed in the Caribbean when he was writing some of them, and he set some of them in the Caribbean. And my frustration with the modern James Bond mythology is that the Caribbean was always treated as a tourist destination. And no characters from the Caribbean are even uh, given much agency in those books. 
and um, particularly in the movies. And so it's a place where the sort of rich Western spies basically come to do, have their adventures and have sex with the women and play on the, play in the landscape and blow things up and then leave. And I really wanted to sort of turn that upside down and play with it being from the Caribbean. So the point of view character is a Caribbean spy who sets out to, you know, do battle with a, a person with a villainous idea. And I really wanted to have a, a Caribbean James Bond and, and set that within this, climate change future and and play with it. So it's a kind of a fusion of these two ideas I had and see if I could bring some of that high octane James Bond mythology, but with a twist and also basically explore the impact of heavy weather on the Caribbean and how that changes the future politically quite a bit. So what makes a hurricane, uh, a category six hurricane different from a category five hurricane and how soon might we see our first category six hurricane? You know, uh, there were some arguments made for calling Sandy a uh, category six just because of the amount of destruction. Um, but that was a lot of argument. Basically, you know, category five is a catch all for anything that's, you know, worse than a category four. So I don't know if we'll ever, ever divvy it up that much, but you know, so from that point of view, it's a literary mechanism. It's just like saying, imagine hurricanes that are even worse than what you think of as normally category five. Um, and we'll see what scientists do down the road. But uh, it's more wind, more power, more destruction as a result of, you know, more heat being in the atmosphere. And, you know, the final hurricane that rendered me, you know, that forced me to have to leave the islands was, I, I think we hit, the, there was a... uh The problem with that hurricane was it passed over the, the Caribbean, it passed over the Virgin Islands extraordinarily strong and by the time it reached Florida it had abated somewhat so when it hit Florida they downgraded the the gusts and the winds uh that it was counted as so when you go to wikipedia it shows a lower high uh wind strength than we recorded on the island and that the noaa um people refused to to sort of admit but the um winds topped out at 240 miles an hour according to weather stations and in in St. Thomas before they were blown away. Um, and that is, that is tremendous. And the damage it did was tremendous. And it changed things, you know, and it's, it's still something that just sits in the back of my head and I wanted to write about. It changed things, that last storm that, that kicked me out. Because, you know, before then, boat people used to live on boats. I grew up on a boat and we lived in the Caribbean and people lived on boats up and down the Caribbean. And up until that point, you could buy insurance for your boat. And in the rare event of a hurricane destroying your boat, you would get a paycheck, right? Um, after that hurricane season, insurance companies don't insure boats anymore um, for all of Hurricane Alley. So you can have boat insurance, but you can't physically be in Hurricane Alley during hurricane season. You either have to be in the States on the East Coast or you have to be in the South Caribbean. You can't be anywhere in the North Caribbean on a boat and have boat insurance because all the boats were gone. They were all destroyed. And all these insurance companies went bankrupt and disappeared overnight and refused to pay out. They just collapsed. The whole thing collapsed because the all of the uh, past projections and assumptions that were used to make these insurance companies work were completely blown out of the water by this, you know, quote unquote, black swan event. Right. And so 
you just look at things like that and you just keep projecting them forward. What happens if no one can get heavy weather insurance? What if you can never have your house insured for hurricane, you know, hurricane impact? What does that do? Like, what kind of house do you have to build then? Where do you choose to live? What does that do to all of society? You know, um, these things just are, you know, things that happen just from that one thing that, that got me thinking, you know, what happens if this is a more and more frequent event? So that's, you know, hurricane fever is just me trying to come to terms and grapple with that on a personal level as well as on a fictional level. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. And then, so then, uh, Ramez, I mean, we mentioned that you have some nonfiction books you've written, uh, More Than Human and The Infinite Resource. Do any of these hold any uh, hope of any sort of technological uh, solutions to these uh, problems we're facing? Yeah, so The Infinite Resource is subtitled The Power of Ideas on a Finite Planet, and uh, it's a book about climate change, energy, food, water, uh, all the ecological and resource problems that we have. And the first third will get you very depressed. <laughs> um, and then I, I try to bring it back around with, here's how we solved other problems in the past. Here's the technologies that are promising with things like renewables uh, and storage. And I talk about some controversial things like nuclear power and genetically modified foods. And then the last third is a call to action on uh, the political process and uh, pricing carbon and limiting carbon emissions and and that sort of thing. I wonder, actually, could you and Paolo have you and Paolo talked about this? Because I mean, um, like one of his first stories was the people of Sand and Slag, which was about basically okay, genetically okay. engineering people to survive in a environment made inhospitable to ordinary human life, and. Uh- yeah, go ahead. Paolo, Paolo and I have talked about genetically engineering food quite a lot, actually. <laughs> I think uh, we uh, – I don't think we differ on the science at all. I think we differ on uh, – uh, well, I think actually Paolo has very legitimate concerns on how well we're able to regulate corporations, right? And that's the, the real issue. And given uh, the very accurate things that, that Paolo points out about how well corporate interests are able to manipulate – the public communication of science. We know that uh, corporations uh, for years cast doubt on the science about smoking and so on. That gives people a lot of reason to doubt the science right now about things like GMOs. But the science on GMOs actually is tremendously more clear. Um, but even so, you worry about regulatory capture and, and so on. I think I think that uh, Ramez and I actually we tend to agree a lot on the, the 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 potential of human innovation and the potential to do good things in the world. Um, where we differ tends to be whether or not I think or he thinks we'll actually be able to execute on that potential. <laughs> um, and that's really where you know it, it's far more an analysis of society and and how we structure our societies that where where we have. Um, different ideas about where our future might go. It's it's not at all in the on the in the technological space. I think we both are in great agreement that, that we have a huge amount of technological capacity and innovative capacity. Um, so, I mean, Paul, could you talk about? I mean, what do you think about this idea that you explored in your story, the people of sand and slag, that rather than trying to change the climate, people would just genetically engineer Adapt. themselves to survive right. whatever we um, well re- i mean this is this is a you know it's it's the techno optimist argument it says we're an innovative species and we will innovate when we face a problem we will innovate 
um, we will solve the problem, you know? And so, hey, you know, if our food sources are tainted with mercury, by God, we're going to find a way to make ourselves immune to mercury poisoning. Sec- you know, that's fantastic. We, we've ne- we're now immune to mercury poisoning. So we can dump as much mercury into the ocean as we like. Um, yes. You know, the, the, I think that the, the. And too bad for the whales. Right. You know, and we don't need them. If we don't need them, really, do we care? Like, I mean, if, if it really has no impact on our personal well-being, um, you know, if, if, uh, if, if, if urban pollution didn't cause asthma, maybe we don't care at all about urban pollution. We can make it a, you know, we can make the air as thick as soup and we don't care. Um, and, um, and so like, you know, there's, if we could, if we could, uh, engineer ourselves or if we could find ways to, uh, regenerate our lung tissue or whatever the thing is, um, then, you know, suddenly things that we consider to be, you know, great inconveniences now, uh, we might not consider them to be uh, problems in the future. And and I think that, that what it, that is, is it's symptomatic of a certain set of ideas that says, oh, here's the problem right in front of me. The problem is... Um, the problem is pollution. Well, you know, we could either stop polluting, but it's so profitable to pollute. Let's find another solution. And so we'll find a techno fix for this. And so we'll say, okay, let's find a way to regenerate people's lung tissue so they aren't as affected by the pollution. Great. And you keep following down that line. And so you say we're, we're innovative, but we aren't necessarily wise. Um, that was one of the, the reasons I kind of um, wrote Arctic Rising was when you we were having these discussions, particularly in science fiction with people on panels about, you know, the impact of, of global warming is that there's a tremendous uh, number of people with this sort of faith and engineering mindset. So you get yeah. people say like, oh, you know, global warming is not going to be a problem because we're just going to put a giant mirror in space and then we'll just <laughs> cool down the planet really quickly and boom, everything's solved. So you don't have to worry about it. As soon as we have an awesome space program, it's, it's all solved. <laughs> so we can just kind of like pump out as much carbon as we want. No worries, man. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons I just, I wrote Arctic Rising, the, the prequel to Hurricane Fever was, you know, I, I sat down and I, I was diddling around with the idea of a giant orbital mirror and I promptly thought, you know, James Bond, what <laughs> right. happens when you have a giant orbital mirror? It's a giant frickin' laser. You've got a giant frickin' laser beam in outer space. And who controls that? Who gets to decide what to do with it? Like, does the army dial you up and say, hey, we know you're cooling the planet down, but there's this troublesome group of people over here in the Middle East that are attacking us. Can you just, like, aim the laser or the giant wave of heat at them for a while and get them to go away and boil the ground while you're at it? Um, and if that's run by software, what happens if someone takes that over? Like, basically, all the ideas and scenarios to quickly cool the planet are giant frigging James Bond weapons that can be badly used or have unintended side consequences, the likes of which are fairly profound. I mean, even just the guy who wanted to throw a bunch of iron ore out into the ocean recently to try and help global warming created a plankton bloom that completely screwed things up, right? And so it's like, guy, you know, these, these, the ideas that, like, you know, if we can just find this one technological band aid, um, that makes everything go away. We can just continue doing whatever it is we've been doing all along and no worries. Yeah. I'm really interested actually in science fiction, wanting the technological band aid rather than the social fix. Always it's the techno yeah. fix. And there's, I a, think there's it's a, a lot easier to write. That. Yeah. It's a lot easier to write the techno fix. Well, and it's comforting. It's comforting. It's very comforting to think that maybe there is an idea that is just this one thing that if we can do it, all the problems go away. And, and I lie somewhere between Paolo and Mez in that, like, you know, I, I do have a tremendous amount of, of, uh, faith in, in the ability of, you know, tech, cool technical things to happen. 
but like Paolo, I, I have this tremendous frustration with the, the, the doubt industry, which is that has changed so much just in the last few years. And I, and I've had personal encounters with it because I remember when CFCs were about to be regulated, my stepfather took me in his car once that he'd just gotten the AC completely done with Freon. He'd have completely recharged it with Freon right before all the regulations went into effect, you know, so that he could have the coldest air possible. And he got me in the car and he took me around and he's like, enjoy this right now, because after this leaks out and is no longer charged, you will never have air conditioning again in your lifetime. Because that's yeah. what the doubt, that's what the doubt was being spread. It's like, you know, right. they've, they, they're going to pass, the politicians are going to pass these laws and humanity will never be cool in <laughs> tropical environments again. There'll be no refrigeration. We're all fucked. You know, that was basically the, the message I got. And at the time I was just like 13 or 14 or whatever it was. And I was just sort of like, wow, that's going to be really horrible. <laughs> um, you know, I like having food that stays cool. Um, I want my yogurt in the morning and milk on my cereal. And I thought, wow, wow, things are just going downhill. You know, things are going to be so bad. Um, and you know, we regulated it and it turns out that like, if you put a price on things like this, you will tinker and come up with a new form of, of AC and we're incredibly clever monkeys. Um, but the fact that now, like the idea that the same mechanism that was used to, you know, regulate and, and stop acid rain or CFCs is unable to be applied to carbon markets is basically now, you know, something that's locked in. And, and that's depressing as hell. That's something that we did just, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago is not going to be able to be done on carbon, even though we know it worked back then. Well, so, so I hear you guys and I, I do agree that like this fear and certainly doubt industry is out there, but we have to just remember that it took a long time to accomplish those things. And that at the same time, over the weekend, China announced that they're rolling out their national carbon plan in 2016, right? So sure. steps are being taken. And yeah. the other thing, the other thing that happens is that there's this other countervailing trend that as societies get richer, their, the sphere of human concern grows and environmental protection grows uniformly in societies as they grow richer. And what you see is that uh, almost always poor societies, like lower-income nations, you know, don't have environmental protections at all, whether it's for their forests, their rivers, species. They tend to have just plain stuff like they litter. They let, you know, oil, whatever, go into their rivers. And, and, and yet then per capita richer, carbon, carbon act on those things. Per capita carbon footprints put the lie to that, right? I mean, we're the richest countries and we have the biggest carbon footprints. The poorest countries tend to not have the, the largest carbon footprint. So in this particular case, all of the weight rests on us. And yet our concern for it is is minuscule in comparison to the concerns of, say, Bangladesh. <laughs> it's true. And I think, well, the reason for that, I think, is that carbon is something that we have relatively recently woken up to as a pollutant. Like smog is a pollutant you can see and and touch and you're immediately aware that something is wrong with soot and smog or with something in a river. And you wake and then we didn't know CFCs were a pollutant. Uh, and so there was no correlation there. And once we did, we started to act on it. And we kind of, we have known for a while that carbon was a pollutant, but it's still much more recent and more abstracted from people than your river is on fire or, or whatever. Um, but you look at forests being protected, species being protected. Those are phenomena that arise in countries when people feel like they have uh, some sort of personal affluence. And then 
empathy does take hold and people actually, uh, you know, just human beings actually seem to have some desire to protect the natural world. Uh, so once they actually do get convinced, and I understand that that, that takes, I agree with you, that takes some effort to overcome the, the doubt industry, they actually say, yeah, you know, I do want the natural world to keep existing. Uh, and I'm willing to do something, if I understand that the cost is reasonable, to make that happen. Uh, all right, cool. Yeah, but so we're, we're way over time here, so we need to, need to start wrapping this up. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to give... Ramez, the last word there before Paolo comes along and depresses me again. <laughs> it's all good. I, li- I like hanging out with him. He makes me feel happy for a little bit more. <laughs> Likewise, you challenge my thoughts. I like it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so everyone go check out Hurricane Fever. And uh, guys, I just want to really thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having us on. Thank you, all three of you. It's a lot of fun. And that was our panel. So thanks again to Paolo Banchagalupi, Tobias Bakel, and Ramaz Nam for joining us as guest geeks. And of course, big thanks again to Kim Harrison for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including 4MonkeyMom and Papa4B2G. 4MonkeyMom writes, I found this podcast while looking for writing podcasts, aspiring author but closet science fiction junkie, and got hooked. I went through the past few years, and every time I loved it more and more. Now I have caught up and can't wait for each new episode. I even go back and re-listen to some of the awesome author interviews and take away more insight almost every time. Thank you for a great podcast, guys. So a huge thank you to 4MonkeyMom for that great review. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest crowdfunder, Stephen Segarian, crowdfunder number 86. He and Leonid Levchenko, crowdfunder number 61 also just became the latest listeners to be making monthly contributions to the show. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Raymond Chan, Bruno Onkir, Kurt Donaldson, Jonathan Pottle, R. Chris Four, John Marshall, and Scott Osterling. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And as I mentioned during the panel, we've got five free copies to give away of the new Tobias Bakel eco-thriller Hurricane Fever. To enter, just email us at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com and say you'd like a copy of Hurricane Fever. Five winners will be selected at random and announced at the end of our next episode. And if you live in the New York area, be sure to stop by McNally Jackson Books on September 21st at 3 p.m. Frequent guest geek Matt Lunton will be having a release party for his first novel, The Eighth Continent, so you should all come out and meet Matt, me, and other Geeks Guides to the Galaxy guests and listeners. For more information, visit McNallyJackson.com and click on Events. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, Visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.